it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. Or in this case, we jump into the Wayback Machine and talk a little bit about beer branding. I'm Brews News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and after a couple of weeks of great conversations that Pete Mitchum hosted, I was meant to be back in the chair conducting some new conversations, but a scheduling conflict has delayed this week's and it will be up tomorrow. But because we know you look forward to your weekly dose of beer conversation, and I didn't want you waking up with nothing in your feed, this is a redux version of a conversation we had back in 2015 with consumer psychologist, Gruen Transfer Panelist, and award-winning ad man, Adam Ferrier. We have talked a little in recent Brews News Weeks about the Resh's Appreciation Society and the power of brand and why brands have a deeper appeal than just products. This is a fascinating chat about that power, and our ability to, well, lie to ourselves about a product to create an image of who we want to be to ourselves and to others. We have referred to this podcast a few times of late, and today was an opportune time to reply it for you. Apologies in advance for the audio. It's not great, but it does show how far we have come, and the conversation is worth the effort. Enjoy my chat with Adam Ferrier. What is a consumer psychologist? Matt, a consumer psychologist is a, uh, a psychologist who looks at um, understanding people as and their relationship with consumption. So um, consumer psychology looks at why people buy what they buy uh, and works out ways to influence them to uh, either buy more or buy less, depending on what side of the, um, the moral compass you're working on. <laughs> we, we might come to that a little bit later, but uh, you, you've got a background. You, you are a psychologist, um, but what fascinated me about your uh, bio is that you spent some time as an international cool hunter. Yeah, um, that was um, uh, by chance, really. So I, I was studying um, uh, psychology and clinical psychology. Um, at the same time, I was studying a marketing degree, so I always knew I wanted to get into some kind of commercialized form of psychology uh, and I did my thesis in clinical psych on identifying the underlying constructs of cool people and um, and I did that again because I wanted to study something that had a commercial application I knew at the time everybody was interested in what makes people cool uh, did that identified five factors that make people cool and then um, I used that knowledge to help uh, brands um, kind of identify cool trends and cool people around the world. So what is a cool person? I'm not just asking for a friend. <laughs> uh, so um, all, when, when, when we did the study and, and subsequent kind of research later shows that all, if you identify somebody as cool, they've got five traits. They've got self-belief and confidence. They defy convention, bracket but not for defying convention's sake. They're under, uh, they're they're successful, but they're understated about it, so we call that understated achievement. Uh, caring for others, so they're probably slightly left-wing, slightly humanitarian. And uh, the final factor is connectivity, highly connected. Um, so those, those variables were, uh, were what, yeah, 
what differentiated cool from uncool people. Right. Uh, you, you sound like you're sort of talking about something that's the complete antithesis of uh, what people have come to label the hipster. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, let's go through them. Self-belief and confidence, maybe. Defying convention, no, because it's very, very contrived. Um, understated achievement. The hipsters don't strike me as being particularly understated. Caring for others, pretty self, they seem like a pretty self-centred, very self-aware bunch. I don't know, yeah, so maybe hipsters aren't cool at all. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, don't know. It's, I, reckon, I reckon the whole... I, I find it very difficult how hipsters can um, authentically feel hipsterish when there's so much kind of language and uh, discourse going on about their look and their aesthetic. It must be very hard for them to just, just not care what people think when everybody has an opinion on their on their tribe, if you like. <laughs> I should say that was a, a completely unplanned detour and it's not in any way suggesting that craft beer drinkers or beer drinkers are hipsters, but uh, <laughs> which seems has been a subject of discussion recently that has upset a few people. Right. One of the things I wanted to speak to you about today is beer in Australia is one of those products that people have a very strong sense of emotional attachment to. We have a, a much stronger attraction to beer brand and ble- and uh, you know think much more deeply about beer than we do about a whole lot of other consumer goods you know something as ubiquitous as milk or even something as uh, recently popular as wine what is that emotional attachment um, you know why do we have such a personal resonant attachment to beer I guess the, the, I guess there's a few reasons for that number one is um, is the alcohol in beer will give you some kind of um, disinhibiting effect and um, and some kind of um, loosen you up a little bit and when you have a disinhibiting effect and you can act to how you want to act then you're going to have a pretty close relationship with any brand or any product category that has that promise you want to be able to trust that brand pretty well the second thing is people are normally drinking beers in situations that matter it's not around the breakfast table when it's just you and um you on your own or you or your flatmate or you and your wife or somebody you know really well, you're often consuming beer in situations that are highly socially important to you. And so uh, there's a saying in consumer psychology that actual self plus brand equals ideal self. And so at the very least, you want the brands you consume to be reflective of who you are and or who you aspire to be. And so therefore, because because you're consuming beer in situations that are important to you and important on, on how you perceive yourself and the friendships you have and so on, it kind of tends to have an elevated role, I guess, in our in our consciousness, what, what beer you choose and what that beer says about you. The difficulty for marketers is it's bloody hard to get people to admit that. <laughs> we, we, that that's another idea that I think we'll come back to um, uh, about admitting to ourselves why we uh, choose the brand of beer. But it's interesting that you say um, that brand you know, um, is self plus ideal self or brand. Sorry, uh, Actual self plus brand equals ideal self. Equals ideal self. Because when you look at some of the famous beer ads, and uh, we, we talked about some of these, the Bruin transfer recently, but you, know, you, you think of the classic Forex ad where there's four, you know, I would describe as slightly buffoony guys on a fishing trip, you know, uh, none of them are particularly, uh, you know, athletic looking. They all look like they've sort of uh, gone to sea a little bit. 
there doesn't seem to be too much ideal self reflected in, in those ads. Um, is it that beer drinkers have a very low sense of self that that is their idea, <laughs> ideal self? Yeah, well, you know, if you think about the 70s, when we're probably possibly living in a time where most people were more constrained and had more, um, pro- you know, in quotes, professional office jobs and there was less casualisation in the workforce. And so then when you wanted to have a beer, you know, beer was all about clocking off and enjoying yourself and being a buffoon with your mates and hanging out. So, you know, I'd, I'd challenge that and say, no, for, for the time, that probably was a pretty good articulation of what your ideal self was in that moment. I'm talking about the current Forex ads. <laughs> so, 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 30, so 30 years down the track... Are we now, you know, has the, uh, the the mainstream beer industry sort of uh, really uh, missed the boat and sort of stayed, you know, decades away in terms of our self self identity? Well, I reckon a lot of uh, I reckon the big commercial brewers are operating uh, with you know two tiers of brands at the moment. You've got your traditional mass market brands and you've got your niche kind of more urban or craft uh, brands. And you know maybe they're just staying the course on those bigger brands because that's what those brand that's what the meaning of those brands is all about, and maybe they're still a target consumer that those messages resonate to. But I think what's what's interesting is is the whole kind of, where the growth is in, in the beer category rather than the decline. Those those codes, those buffoony mateship codes, are are not there at all in in the growth areas of um of beer. I look at a watershed, and when when you see the ads, um, you know they're, they're targeting blokes who are probably, you know, 40 and above. Um, the, the the forex gold ad, and then you've got forex summer bright lager that targets is is what's called a contemporary um, premium, which is a you know they seem to be targeting the under 30s, and they've got a very different um, brand promise um, than the other forex brands. Is, is that sort of a case of a line? You know, understanding a little bit where it's going, and uh, I, I described it uh, at the Bruin, uh, the Bruin transfer as you know they almost are waiting for the forex gold drinkers to die off so they can shift fully into the more contemporary uh, attitude of beer. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I mean I don't, I don't know. I haven't spoken spoken to them obviously, but my yeah, I, I'm I'm assuming that they're understanding the trends and understanding uh, the changing demographic of beer drinkers and. Um, and trying to contemporise that brand. But it's bloody hard. Again, it's really hard to do that. A brand's like a muscle. And uh, if you constantly do the same thing over and over again, you get very, very strong at standing for one thing. But it gets very, very inflexible and very hard to stretch out of doing that. So that's why uh, big kind of legacy brands struggle to reinvent themselves because they've become so strong, so synonymous with one thing in the consumer's mind. That's something that uh, we've seen the brewers grappling with. The Brewers Association came out last year and talked about they were going to bring a uh, uh, campaign about brand beer and try and change some of the, what are now regarded as negative perceptions about beer. Um, you know that it uh, causes weight gain, that it uh, you know is only for blokes and not women, and that women aren't welcome to the party. Um, I've criticised them on the basis that you know they were the ones that helped shape and reinforce those perceptions. Is, is that what you were talking about there, that it becomes inflexible, it's very hard to change those perceptions that they've reinforced? Yeah, I was, I was talking about more, more, I mean, I was talking about more mainstream lager style, what Australians call, I think what Australians call lager style 
full-strength beers, you know, they, they have positioned themselves uh, as largely um, irrelevant to to emerging beer drinkers. However, it is what what beer has done as a brand is it's broadened its uh, it's broadened what is now considered beer into a whole lot of you know all the craft beers, uh, premium beers, light beers, mid drinks, and, and so on and so on. So it kind of feels like at the moment you you. Your mainstream full strength lager has got a dated, uh, a very dated um, role in society, but it's like, but beer feels as a category feels stronger than ever, ever mainly because of what all the niche brewers are doing, and beer culture is changing massively, and it's so exciting as a as a beer lover uh, to see. So more women are drinking beer than ever. More better quality beers being drunk, you know, all of all of the kind of stuff you know, and um, and your listeners of this would already know anyway. We, we, we've seen over the last few years uh, what were once imported beers, but are now international beers. They're most of them brewed here, um, have almost become the mainstream uh, market. They're, they're no longer seen as premium. They're almost the default beer for a big part of the uh, population, the beer drinking population. But even though they're brewed here. Uh, they don't seem to have lost too much of their cachet. Um, what is it about the international beers that something that is the equivalent of you know, Foster's or uh, VB on the streets of Rome or uh, you know, Bremen in Germany um, or, or, or the States is seen as premium when it lands on our shores? Um, well, that, that's not... There's, there's a, couple, a couple of things. That, that, that's not dissimilar to, to cars where... Um, BMWs in, in Germany are, are taxis, and yet over here they're kind of seen as as premium cars. So it depends if something's not from here, it has a sense of scarcity and value that uh, and, and kind of, for want of a better word, exoticness and a, a whole lot of symbols, symbolism that you can buy into that, that marks you as a particular person. So if you're drinking um, a beer from Belgium, it's going to say, you know, you've got a bit European, a bit kind of arty, a bit whatever. If a beer, if so, that becomes the beer, the the brand promise, and the brand promise is made up of everything that brand does, everything that brand stands for, the image of it, the label, the advertising, what's in the actual liquid itself. Out of all of those factors, if that suddenly just says oh, brewed in Australia or, or brewed in Australia or made in Australia to, to European recipes or whatever, that's only one very, very, very small component of what that brand's actually about. So therefore, it kind of makes sense that it should have very little impact on sales or very few people would reject it based on just purely on the fact that it's consumed here. When we when we consume beer or any other any brand, it has two lots of benefits. It has rational benefits, what's the actual product like and what it does to me, and emotional benefits. The emotional benefits of beer, because it's, as you said before, it's such an emotive category is so important that they can still survive even if no matter where the beer is brewed. Does that make sense? So, so yeah. So a Belgian beer is still a Belgian beer, even if it, because that's the promise. That's what it says. That's what it communicates. That's its image, uh, even if it's actually brewed here. A lot of uh, beer drinkers that I communicate with feel cheated when they turn the bottle over and see a very small print, you know, brewed under license in Australia. Is it the marketers cheating them or are they allowing themselves to be deluded by buying into the whole uh, uh, brand anyway? I think we're deceiving ourselves for buying into that. 
I think you know if you if you discover the, a, a brand you really love and you've uh, um, invested a lot of that of yourself into that brand and you find out it's from it's brewed in Australia where you thought it was brewed in Belgium, I think you're going to be able to find a way to rationalise your way out of that very very easily. Um, there's a great book by a guy called Seth Godin called All Marketers Are Liars. And what he what he says is we like is market a marketer's job is to create a story about a brand that's believable enough for for um for consumers to buy into and feel okay about. So if you're drinking, for example, a Stella that's from the and you're drinking it because you want to be perceived as premium, it's a bit European, it's a bit arty or whatever, then as long as that brand is communicating all of that kind of stuff about you and that be a taste all right, then you're going to forgive that brand very very quickly for being brewed in Australia. If it's being brewed in Australia, it fundamentally communicates something very, very different about you. So it's, it's on massive letters and the packaging or whatever, then you might change your mind. But um, other than that, you're going to be very, you're quite happy to deceive yourself to go along with the story. I get um, the, the the feeling from craft drinkers, and I, in fact, they come out and say um, that they drink purely for the flavour. That they don't care who makes it, and you know, you see a lot of people sort of saying, "Look, I don't care who makes my beer. I'll just sort of go where the flavour is." It, it, are they sort of much more in, in, in tune with you know the, the the rational benefits, or are they sort of buying into some of those emotional benefits as well? Yeah, I, I, it's, I, I would have. I'd ha- it's it's an interesting question, and I think they're probably uh, I think they're probably deluding themselves. So I think they're probably buying into the image uh, of that beer and of that craft beer as much as anyone. And I think as soon as they drink that beer, they want to know the story. You know, they find a beer they like, they want to know the story about it, who the brewer is, where it's brewed, and then they'll be quick to recite all of that information to someone else when given the opportunity. Now, they might think they're doing that to tell us it's a pure product story, but even by their their willingness or their want to just tell a pure product story, it's also communicating something about them that they don't get into the hype of brands and all of that kind of stuff. But then they're still using that brand in the same kind of way. Today, young consumer is completely marketing saturated. They don't know what it's like to live in a society where not everything's branded. So everything absolutely everything has, has a kind of a, a brand story associated with it. If you're talking about a 65-year-old uh, plus kind of uh, consumer who grew up in a time when marketing wasn't as pervasive, then I might believe them a little bit more that they really truly just have found something they like the taste of and they're not interested in the marketing message. But if it's anyone 65 or younger, I think, nah, they're just, we're all suckers for it. <laughs> it, it it sounds like it's going a little bit back to uh, the, the whole question of who is cool. Um, you know, it, it, it sounds like we, for most of us, feel that we need permission to drink. Or we need to be able to justify what we're drinking if we're asked by uh, you know a friend, why are you drinking that? Is that something that we, we sort of look for when we choose the brands that reflect us? Yeah, I think you know, what, I think you're talking about the barroom defence, which is. I think both the big brewers use that kind of phraseology. Uh, so when somebody asks you why you're drinking a beer, no matter what the emotional reasons are, you've got a rational defence. You can't say I'm drinking that beer because I like the advertising. You have to, or I like the packaging, or I like the story of the brewery. You have to be able to say something rational about the actual liquid itself. Like it's crisp, it's refreshing, it's got chocolatey notes whatever it is, but people need a rational decision 
again, so they, they can feel good about themselves and see themselves as a, as a rational human being, not somebody who makes their decisions based on a whim or based purely emotionally. Um, so it's, it's, it's human. It, what I really want, I'd, I'd love people just to understand marketing, understand its effects, admit that none of us are immune from it. And then once we kind of acknowledge that to ourselves, then we can make more informed decisions about what we buy into and what we don't, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. The wine industry's got some great studies where they've hooked people up to EEG machines and given them glasses of wine and said this one's a $15 bottle and the next one's a $75 bottle of wine and measured the, the, the way that their brain registers pleasure for each of them. Yeah, that's and they, right. And then what you're talking about, there's a great study where they, where they looked at the thing called the price placebo and the more you charge, the better it tastes and the more you enjoy the wine. Now, nobody's going to admit to that. And they're not going to admit to enjoying the bottle of wine more if they pay more for it. And the same works for beer as well. But, you know, in quotes, it's the truth. And so people need to acknowledge that. <laughs> but the, the thing about those studies that for me is, you know, I can understand rationally that we convince ourselves um, that, we want to in, that we want to enjoy it more. But that study showed that there was actually a physical response um, of, of greater pleasure for the more expensive thing. And it, to, to me, it shows how deeply we delude ourselves uh, in, in those sorts of situations. Yeah, one, yeah, I, I totally agree. And um, it just goes to show how, how far, how hard it is for us to convince ourselves that we're um, enjoying something for rational reasons. And if we're paying more for it, then it must be better quality wine and we must be enjoying it more than if we didn't pay more for it, so therefore we do. We're very effective liars to ourselves. You've had some, uh, you know, you've got extensive experience uh, in advertising. You work for Cummins and Partners that has done that has won a number of awards um, for the way that you've uh, approached your advertising. Is there one beer brand that you would love to take control of and you know turn around its uh, its advertising and its marketing? Um. Uh, let me answer that by uh, I'll answer a slightly different question. Uh, I really respect and love what uh, Corona has done for the industry. I think, uh, and I'm sure a few of your listeners would uh, put hairs on the back of their neck. <laughs> but, uh, but, I, but I think how I think I think their style of advertising, the emotive promise, I think is wonderful. I think it's great. I think uh, I think the way Coopers has maintained um, its relevance as craft beer has skyrocketed, I think, is uh, very admirable. Um, I would love to see um, every mainstream brand have a genuine uh, chocolate porter with uh, probably with with coffee in it as well, just because I just love them. And so, you know, if if I could convince any big brewer to do that, that'd be great. Um, but there's no there's no real there's no real brand I, I'm, I'm dying necessarily to get my hands on. One of the things I, I was told by a marketer for one of the big breweries is that they found it very hard to engage with the craft segment because it is so small, um, and you know it was described that they have big hands and so they they sort of can't get in and pick up the little um, bits and pieces that are that are floating around. Um, is, is there a way that you think that they could much more effectively engage with these new and emerging craft beer markets than they have already? I love that expression of the, of the big hands, and I, and I uh, see the issue. I mean, marketing is, is a mass market game where traditionally you have uh, mass production, 
mass distribution supported by mass communications and that's what the big brewers have gotten good at. They need to get a whole different skill set to be able to manage um, craft beers. Unfortunately, craft beers, a little bit like wine, sometimes work against the the rules of marketing where the the more popular it becomes, the more aspirational it becomes. And in fact, uh, you know, for many wine brands, sometimes becoming popular can kill the brand. And I think craft beers face that same struggle. They need to be managed, yeah, very delicately and very nimbly. Um, and they and there's a whole different set of skill sets rather than just advertising that they need that the big brewers need to learn. And that's kind of again why I think it's kind of it's kind of like a two-speed economy at the moment. There's your massive legacy brands, and then there's the the craft brands, and they need very very different skill sets in how those brands are marketed. You're a beer lover yourself, and I understand that you wrote your book, The Advertising Effect, uh, How to Change Behaviour, sitting in the local tap house at St Kilda. Um, yep, that, that, that's right. Many, Sunday, many, many a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. It, what do you think craft beer could do to better sell its own brand? Uh, I think it needs... I think craft beer... I think it's already doing it. I think it's already embracing... If, females and femininity and making sure every craft brewer has uh, has females as part of its target market so it's a inc- totally inc- inclusive brand for a modern world the other thing I think it could do which it's already doing is losing its stuffy bearded image and um, oh, I'm not sure about maybe the stuffy image I'm not so so sure about the bearded image <laughs> there's quite a few beards aren't there associated with craft beer <laughs> But uh, you know, craft beer to me is just um, is beer with with beer with flavour, and um, and that can and beer that offers new experiences each time you try it, and that doesn't have to be shrouded in uh, yoldy worldy imagery, or and 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 alternatively, people if, if people don't do that, the craft brewers then they go straight to hipster imagery. But there's a lot of other stuff in between where you can just wrap a different type of product story around that. Those beers. So I think just being even more inclusive of women and being and offering a more contemporary um, uh, image. Um, it could be modern. It could be slick. It you know it could be whatever. It doesn't have to be yoldy woldy. Adam, we could uh, discuss this for hours, and we might get you on uh, at, at a much later stage. But uh, I know you've got a meeting to go to. Thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. And uh, now we'd, um, we'll link to your book, The Advertising Effect, because I think it's something that a lot of people in the craft industry um, should read. Um, can you just give us a thirty-second elevator pitch for for buying the book? Yeah, thanks for linking it. I'd love to. Um, the whole premise of the book is uh, how to, is I've been in two industries uh, as a psychologist and in advertising. Both of those industries is about how to change people's behaviour. The premise of the book is that everybody's in the behaviour change business, whether you've got your own brewery, whether you're a mother trying to get a kid to eat her vegetables, uh, or whether you're a husband trying to get your partner to come home on time. We're all trying to change other people's behaviour. So it's just taking what I know and putting it into a book. And then the fundamental premise of the book beyond that is that action changes attitude much faster than attitude changes action. So if you can get somebody to do something, and we were talking a bit, a, a bit about it before, then they're going to change their thoughts and feelings to make sense of their behaviour. Um, so wherever possible, try to ask people a favour, try to get them to do something for you, and if you can do that, they'll change their thoughts and feelings to make sense of that. And so it's all about different ways to get people to act and therefore change their behaviour. Um, but yeah, yeah. anyway, that, that's a long-winded pitch.
Oh, we, we got to the 16th floor. That's no worry. <laughs> that was Adam Ferry. I hopefully you, you will agree that was well worth another listen and make sense of some of the things that we've talked about on the podcast in recent weeks. Look out for our scheduled conversation tomorrow. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Cryer Malt. With over 25 years in the field, Cryer Malt are dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. Your premium brewing partner and proud sponsors of this and this is beer is a conversation. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show.